1: Welcome to the podcast. What
0: is up, Justin? Happy Halloween!
1: Happy Halloween! I know it's not actually Halloween, but hopefully, uh, you know we're celebrating a few days early. Yeah. This is our Halloween special. Uh, we did this last year, which was really exciting. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that we do an extra episode to release during the week of Halloween. Why wouldn't we?
0: I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of scary movies out there, um, and, and and there's a lot to talk about with them too, and. For this particular episode, we're going to focus on a specific genre subsect of horror movies,
1: and that is the slasher genre, uh, specifically 80s versus 90s. And I know we, uh, it's more, we did the the verses more as a. Uh, Catchy title. <laughs> yeah. If anything, we're not really uh, there's none. pitting the 80s yeah. versus the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're they're their own things, you know. And you couldn't have 90s slashers if, if the 80s slashers didn't exist. But we will break down some differences between the two.
0: There are some stark, obvious, um, you know, things that track from the 80s and before and into the 90s and beyond. But there are some things that that make both decades very different from each other. And if we don't hit on your favorite slasher movie, the one that you think is the most iconic, the best movie ever made. We're sorry. but yeah, we should <laughs> I should say
1: we're sticking strictly to, I mean, really, mainly like the mainstream slasher movies of the eighties and 90s. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll touch on some that are like a little outside of that. but um, uh, you know there's been entire podcast series dedicated just to the Friday 13th franchise of the 80s, so we only have about 90 minutes (laughs) and we're going to try to tackle uh, both the 80s and the 90s, so we'll basically be skimming the waters of the slasher genre, but hopefully enough to entertain and inform a little bit along the way.
0: There was a rise, fall, resurgence of, and continuing on of the genre, so that's kind of what we're going to track for you. Yeah, We know these movies and we love them. Some are better than others, but... I, I think for the purposes of what, what we're doing, this is educational and this is going to kind of help you if you if you don't know anything about the slasher genre, or even if you do, this is going to um, help kind of track the progress.
1: Yeah, kind of. Uh, it's, it's funny because getting into the spirit of this episode the last few weeks, most of the slasher films I watch are ones that... I Don't know that we'll talk about extensively, yeah. Um, because most of the mainstream slashers I've seen, but I did save one for my pick of the week, a uh, more of a underseen.
0: Oh, yeah. What was your pick of the obscure,
1: week? Uh, slashers, yeah. My pick of the week. So, actually, our this episode probably will go a little bit longer than our other episodes, but we're not going to be doing clips because there's just too much to cover. I and, mean,
0: well, uh, uh, aside from One liners, you know, and and, and stabbing noises and blood gurgles like what 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 clips are you going to do when you're talking about a million movies?
1: But uh, we are going to each do our we're going to keep our picks of the week shorter than usual, but we are each going to do a pick of the week from the 80s and the 90s, both in the slasher genre. So my 80s pick was uh, Just Before Dawn, which I think is a little more known now. Um, And it's actually like a pretty early slasher. It came out in 1981. You know, didn't do very well. I think it borrowed a little bit too heavily from the slashers of the 70s. um, Whereas like something like Friday 13th kind of had the punch of not only just a title but um, was more focused on, like, The Kills, whereas this one... Um, though I think when you watch it now, I actually enjoy it more than the original Friday 13th, but The Kills are a little more lackluster than uh, more of your standard 80s slasher fare.
0: I really enjoyed watching this. You, you showed this to me, and I, yeah, I and, really enjoyed watching it.
1: And what did you pick for your 80s uh, pick of the week?
0: I went with a movie that I I feel like if you know horror movies, not just slasher movies, but if you know horror movies, you've most definitely heard of this, but it's not necessarily the most mainstream horror movie out there, and that is the slasher from 1983 called Sleepaway Camp. One of my faves, it's... I know
1: you love your Sleepaway Camp.
0: (laughs) I do. I can't wait to talk about it. There's a lot to unpack in that one.
1: So my 90s pick is one that uh, is actually one of my favorite 90s slashers horror movies and came out in 1991 um it's popcorn i don't know it's one that too many people are familiar with i always ask people about it and they're like i've i think of i heard the title but i've never seen the movie and that one is a lot of fun i can't wait to talk about that movie and it's one that i've been wanting to uh
0: get, talk about know, in general and
1: get into the episode at one yeah. point yeah
0: popcorn's so much fun um the 90s slasher that i chose is for sure, not one that that people think of. Um, it was from 1997, and it was called Office Killer. A movie from Cindy Sherman. It is if if you know it, you're probably an art student. But um, man, I, I love Office Killer. I don't know how many times I've seen it. I love it so much.
1: Office Killer's like just such a you pick of the week. <laughs> For the slasher genre. I don't really yeah. remember that movie too well. I need to borrow that from you. I think I saw that on like IFC when it first came like in the like late nineties or something. Yeah. It's
0: yeah, it's it's not one that is often characterized as a as a slasher, but it most certainly is. I just think it was one that just yeah, didn't get didn't get talked up a lot or people didn't know really what to make of it. Yeah.
1: So, again, we're not going to have clips. We're going to jump right in. We're going to cover 80s slasher, and then we'll cover 90s slasher uh, before we get into our picks of the week. And then, of course, round things out with our Murray moment.
0: And just real quickly here before we get into the main discussion, slashers come from all over the globe from many different decades. For this episode, we will just be focusing on American and a few Canadian um, like Hollywood, more mainstream movies. There there are certainly some that we'll hit on that are more on the fringe and, and smaller films that ended up bigger. But for the most part, it'll be American with some Canadian influence. There's a lot of Italian horror movies out there, a lot of slasher movies, a lot of blood. But this is this is our topic for this episode. All right, so let's get right into it. All right. So in order to start this discussion, we need to have a little bit of setup. So let's start with a softball. Let's say that Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960 set in action like the the first killer, this like um, um, menace from something that was familiar. Psycho kind of set this trope of an emotionally dependent family member who has mommy issues, right? And um, created this um, boy next door type of terror that could kill anybody and he would be the most unassuming person. That is certainly a trope that has continued until present day. And then a year later, we have a movie called Peeping Tom, which is a serial killer who is filming and stalking his victims, which is kind of nuts because along with Psycho, this is something that continues to persist in horror and slasher movies. So this stalker trope, this serial killer trope, started in the the 60s. But this inspiration for these movies... Started well before that, and that's not to say that we didn't have, you know, serial killers back in Jack the Ripper times, like that that just haven't been documented. But a lot of these movies pulled from the influence of Ed Gein and his crimes in the fifties, um, and that kind of um, you know set us up for a lot of movies in the sixties and the seventies.
1: On top of Ed Gein, just the the seventies, you know, serial killers were a huge kind of media sensation. I mean, there was like serial killers springing up everywhere that was reported on in the news uh nationwide. And really, you know, the the 60s were a time of a lot of the horror films a reflection on what was happening in the media seeped into the movies that were coming out that were that were scary, that were horror-based. And certainly in the 70s there were three movies uh slasher films, Black Christmas, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Halloween that I think were definitely a reflection of What was going on in the media with serial killers, uh, specifically Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which uh, was you know loosely based off of the crimes of Ed Gein.
0: Those three movies, specifically, they were like you said milestones, but those movies set a trope into place. Black Christmas was basically the babysitter, the callers or the killers calling from inside the house, and we've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is Ed Gein, but multiple ed Geins, a whole family and, of and ed it's Geins. somebody
1: going on a trip yeah you know but they're yes. going to an unfamiliar territory and and it causes them to um they be, run you know, into they go into turmoil
0: yes and then halloween which is basically the babysitter killer and all of these and, things and
1: halloween this sort of it can take place in the safe suburban neighborhood that seemingly seems like a real peaceful where nothing ever happens like you know, the the worst thing you could worry about is some kid spitting his gum out on the street and now there's this like, yeah. killer stalking Yeah, teenagers. Halloween
0: is a safe environment. Texas Chainsaw Massacre takes us out of what we know that's comfortable, but we're with our friends, so it should be fine, but we're out of our element. And Black Christmas is that whole idea of being at school yep. or in college. These are all things that persist throughout the slasher genre. And,
1: and ultimately, these all these films, and, and I think that what... What sort of kicked off the 80s for slasher. You have these three movies. Uh, Not only were they independently funded, but all three were like really successful.
0: One thing that I think is a misnomer about these three specific movies from the 70s and other horror movies that weren't in the slasher genre in the 70s was that compared to now, there was such an absence of blood. So you've got Black Christmas, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I didn't watch that for the longest time because it sounded bloody, and Halloween, there is very, very little blood. It is about the creep-out factor, and it is about making you feel off and wrong. But those movies set us up for what was going to happen in the 80s, which was basically a giant explosion of... Creative Kills and Blood Everywhere. I'm also not taking into account there was a whole era of like European 70s horror movies and Italian horror movies that it was about the very, very vibrant, bloody red. But that was more of... An aesthetic, but I mean, if you're going to go into art house type of things with European, Italian, that sort of thing. It, that's, There's a that's, long list. Yeah, it's a whole other episode. That's a whole other discussion. Yeah. So I'm not saying that horror movies weren't bloody before this. I mean, certainly Blood Feast. But in the 70s, we had a major absence of blood and it was more about the freak out or the creep out factor. Yeah. But Halloween set us up for what would become... Friday
1: the 13th. Yeah, and the, and and Friday the 13th, I think, is like... I think it's the slasher franchise that everybody is familiar with. I mean, I feel like everybody has seen at least one of the million Friday the 13th <laughs> movies that are available. But it, 19, it was like the end of the 70s, these movies that we mentioned, these slasher films, were all successful, including Psycho, uh, made for a low budget, made a huge profit. And so Sean Cunningham... You know, had the idea of, okay, let me take this title Friday the 13th has this like very ominous you know catchy title didn't he just and start
0: out with that idea of like that, that's that
1: was the original idea because <laughs> in the 70s you know titles like in the, you know and it's it's funny because in the 70s titles were like everything it was that's like what- the Texas Chainsaw Massacre yes. like The Exorcist that's how you, you know? drew people in uh, you know you you had like a good title um and so you know and Halloween was such a successful title why not Friday the 13th? It's something that we can all, that was already, that's already, you already a have holiday. a set in thing yeah. and you already have something that's set in. That's like bad luck, fear. It's yeah. Friday the 13th. Be careful, watch out. Yeah. Um, and so he uh, got with Victor Miller. Victor Miller wrote the screenplay for Friday the 13th, a very simple story of people going to a camp that has a, a history of something bad that had happened The camp's reopening, and uh, slowly, one by one, these teenagers that are partying and having sex are slowly killed one by one by a killer, uh, just sort of this faceless killer that we don't know what's going on, and that movie was just a huge smash. Uh, It was one of the first real horror films that uh, Paramount Pictures not only picked up the rights to that movie that was independently funded, independently made. Paramount Pictures was like, we're going to roll this out into like a ton of theaters. This wasn't like a thing where they were going to like solely play in drive-ins. They did a big promo for it. They rolled it out into, you know, hundreds and hundreds of theaters all at once. And it just, it was a huge hit, um, gigantic hit, like lines around the block. Critics hated it. They said it was despicable. <laughs> you know, yeah. they, they called it trash, but it kind of like hit this chord with young people, you know, they saw young faces like themselves on screen and you know, it was like something that they could do. It it became this sort of like entertaining thing that caught on with the youth and thus catapulting just every independent producer in Hollywood, anybody that that could get together like a couple hundred thousand dollars or like we need to follow suit. We need to make a slasher film. We need, and, and thus, like, starting the slasher craze of the 80s. Now, I just want to preface this yeah. before we get into these 80s slasher craze. Yeah. There's just no, you know, we don't have enough time to, to just cover every slasher film that came out. So I'm kind of going to focus on ones that were successful and ones that kind of, like, were influential Obviously, we're going to do some honorable mentions along the way. And if we fail to mention a classic slasher film in your eyes, yeah. it's not because we don't like it. It's just we're going to try to pair this, try to get it's,
0: this under two hours, don't,
1: this episode.
0: Get it under two hours. Don't think that, we, you know, we haven't seen the pieces, yeah. the three on a meat hook, the tourist yeah. trap, the a night to dismember. We've been there. Yeah. But some of these movies... They existed, and they're like like a boatload. Yeah. There's so many. So many. It's it's impossible. So So focusing.
1: We love them. We've researched. (laughs) We've watched a lot of them working up to this episode. I feel so desensitized
0: in the last three weeks, let me tell you. So let's get started.
1: So the first, I would say the first three years of the 80s, what worked for the slasher genre was this you 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 put people in the camp you put people you, in a camp you put people in a camp that's the thing <laughs> they, they they're in a camp they they they're going camping they're in the woods it, it takes place at some sort of like yeah. you know uh outdoor activity happening <laughs> you know, out of this city.
0: Hormones are running wild. Yeah, and,
1: and there's a killer and there's a killer that's slowly, you know, killing these. Naturally. You know, kind of worked really well and there was actually a slew of successful, like sort of, you know, you had certainly the first five Friday 13th movies were, mm-hmm. were all big, you know, successful money makers. You had your sleepaway camps. You had you your had, cheerleader camp later yeah, in the 80s. Yeah, you had uh, uh, Just Before Dawn, the movie that I'm going to be yeah. doing for the pick of the week. And it was something that I think, like, really worked, you know, and it's something that is kind of like this universal idea of, like, you know, a lot of us did go to, like, some sort of sleepaway camp or summer camp when we are in, like, third or fourth grade. It's familiar. And, yeah, there's this familiarity. Uh, you know, you're out in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of, you know, you're isolated, so it's the perfect place for someone to slowly massacre everybody without uh, the pesky police or, or anybody else getting involved to to stop it from going on.
0: These camp movies really set up the idea of... What are the things you're not supposed to do in in a horror movie? Whether that's premarital sex, drinking, doing drugs, just anything anything that's not Christian like those things, they're gonna happen at a camp, or at least in the movie version of what a yeah. camp is. And
1: what I find the most like sort of like ironic about that, mm-hmm. really, is <laughs> it because uh, a lot of these movies did get some blowback. You know, they got the, the these movies came out and they. You know,
0: I mean, which way viola. they got a lot of blowback for a lot of a reasons. Lot, you but. know, a
1: lot of a lot of people. You know, they were like, these movies go against our values, and it's like, well, these movies are specifically showing people getting punished for doing the things that you said they're not supposed to do, <laughs> but you don't like it. Yeah. so it was, it's kind of ironic yeah. to me. But um, yeah, you know, it's like this idea of like, yeah, people getting killed for, like you said, having premarital sex. They're being like, what, quote unquote, the final girl. They're being you know a girl or a woman at the at the end of the film who defeats the killer it's down to one person generally a woman and then also the killing the killing involved yeah. the the ways of someone being killed Generally, with some sort of like garden tool, something with a blade <laughs> wasn't always a some, garden something tool. Something <laughs> sharp, you know, a knife, yes. anything that wasn't, you know, wasn't a gun. Something yeah. that that necessary that's something that's like very yeah. visceral and close. You know, yeah, you, you, were... can, you, you have to get in close to to stab somebody. You yeah, know, like you can you, intimate. Yeah, it's very intimate. That's yeah, the
0: and there, there not really any bats used. Nothing that could just knock somebody out. These were these were sharp bladed tools that are going to no matter where they stab someone you just assume that they're going to die
1: it, there is something about even now guns are just so widely used and it's mm-hmm. something that you've seen in westerns you know on sure. police shows like it's something that's utilized it would be weird if like <laughs> if like cops were just like stabbing people if, like just cops that like had machetes you know or like there was a fight and like someone like instead of pointing out a gun they just like whacked off somebody's arm it just doesn't happen and there's there's something about these sort of like weapons Whoa. that that are almost their are primal in the way because it's like yes. what we had before we had guns and it's kind of going back to something very primal again like you said very intimate something about like getting hit with a machete versus a gun just seems like all the more horrific
0: so it is really funny with guns that's something that is a normal thing that we think about guns are still in society all the time not necessarily machetes The thing about slashers is that I think for a lot of people seeing a horror movie, particularly in the slasher genre, it is something that is so mm, unfamiliar and just, yes, okay, yes, we've talked about serial killers and how this is something that we can go, oh my God, that's really happening. But when you put it in this setting, it is something that is so alien and doesn't seem like it could really happen That we go see these movies or what people get out of seeing these movies is the thrill of being able to safely exercise our fears and have it come out. And when you have something like using a gardening tool or a machete or a fork in someone's leg, whatever it is, it's just something that is entertaining and creative but also isn't offensive enough to make us feel alienated or uncomfortable. But that's not to say that movies like that didn't exist. Like you and I have talked about Maniac and I'm uncomfortable with that movie. And I I feel like there's a certain tone difference that happens with something, say, Friday the 13th and other camp movies or movies that happen at school, something that makes us feel really familiar. And then there's this other genre that's this um, kind of more sleazy aspect that feels more mean-spirited than going to a movie to just enjoy this thing this safe thrill where we can leave the theater and be okay afterwards well and
1: i, th- I think too like you had these like with maniac i think maniac kind of led the charge with sort of these like more reality-based slasher films yeah maniac's kind of like its own thing you know in a way because you know it took place in the city most of the victims weren't high schoolers you know that it yeah. really didn't follow like what what was successful about slashers, which I do fi- I do feel like that's why that movie in and of itself was successful in some ways, but it wasn't like this like big, huge hit like the Friday 13th or the Nightmare on Elm Streets. It kind of, again, s- stayed with this sort of same idea of like, we're going to keep the victims, high schoolers, we're going to keep a young audience, you know, coming to flock to the theaters to see people like themselves, like, deal with these, situations deal with these killers
0: and I think that's why those movies work so well is there's a certain I know it sounds weird to say there's a certain fun element to to these movies but there is and like that's the it's it's supposed to be entertaining and to say that watching people get murdered or watching teens get murdered or boobs in blood is entertaining but it is especially when it's done in ways that are creative
1: You know, I think once we get into, like, the middle of the 80s, that creativity is what kind of took off. Nightmare on Elm Street kind of spearheaded that. That's where everything changed. You know, we have this killer who's sort of, like, otherworldly. He actually has, like, a signature weapon, you know, his, like, claws for fingers. Because in the other slashes, you know, sometimes it's a knife, sometimes it's a machete, sometimes it's a pitchfork. Um, (laughs) But, you know, he had this very, you know, and it was kind of embracing this idea that, like, he's, like, actually slashing somebody with this his homemade weapon you know that's personalized and it kind of made it more personal and it kind of made that character more signature and I think that once Nightmare on Elm Street took off I feel like there was a turn where you were where people were starting to cheer for the killer as much as messed up as that sounds by the mid-80s you weren't going to see people like yourselves get killed at a camp you were going to watch Leatherface or Michael Myers or Freddie or Jason kill people. Like you wanted there to be this like signature villain and it was more about the villain than it was about the people getting killed. And I think that's where things sort of, it started switching. I think the early eighties gave us like, it was more about the victims and them dealing with the horror And then, you know, sort of the mid eighties you have sort of it switch and it was less about the victims fear and more about how the killers like toying with them or like the way he like did a specific kill. And that's what we wanted to see. And that became sort of uh, the next level of like the slasher film.
0: And one thing that I feel like should be mentioned too is we have a whole, like nowadays it is completely different. The viewing experience of watching a movie, you know, you can watch it on a computer by, uh, by yourself. There's a lot more of that. But when these movies were coming out, they were watching them in groups, in theaters or renting them and, and watching them at sleepovers horror movies were kind of meant for groups to like thrive off of each other's energy. And the more creative the kill, the more entertaining, the more someone's like, oh, damn, did you see that? Like that, that type of thing. And I think that with that comes a certain element. As long as you're not grossed out by what's happening, there comes a certain element of I don't there comes a certain element of humor and fun And I think that that's where, when we have, the longer that this decade goes on, the longer that Slasher, that the genre goes on, that's where it started to change and we started to have kind of making fun of the genre.
1: Yeah. And I, and I, and I do think that there was like, that that's where you have this sort of, uh, break in like. The sub of the slasher films, yeah. you know, where it's like you've got child's play, a little bit supernatural. They're bringing in other elements. They're mixing up genres that, you know, and trying everything. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, even though they were like supernatural. Even like the Friday the 13th got pretty supernatural there. It did. It, and, you know, certainly Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, with Freddy. It was. Yeah. It, you know, that became the next level but they were still at their core like these slasher movies of like you know someone like systematically
0: but they were trying to be more other. creative and,
1: but i but i do i 100 percent you know i i agree with what you're saying with the you know these were meant to is like fun movies to see in a group and and really in in my opinion like horror movies and comedies they're more fun to see in a group because you're vibing off of the energy of the crowd. You know, it's like if, if uh, someone comes over and tells you a joke, it might be funny, but it's not as funny as when there's a groupie around and you're cut and you're someone is vibing off the energy of the group, and you all you all start yeah. cutting up. And same thing with horror movies, you know, there's there's this tension, and sometimes like you can feel the tension in the theater, and like everybody's kind of freaked out, and you almost kind of laugh sometimes. It's like a release because you're uncomfortable, but yeah. but it but it's fun because you're like experiencing this as a group, and it just I think that works with horror and comedies, you know, like dramas. You know, it's just like if I'm gonna like shrivel up and cry over a movie, it's like that's what I want to do with the I want to do that in the in the in the silence and the comfort of like. <laughs> you know, my own home, like, or, or like a very, uh, like, like a very like sparsely attended matinee screening, you know?
0: (laughs) Yes, completely. I remember seeing, uh, God, it must have been Scream 3 at a very, it's not so much anymore, but a theater in St. Louis that was known for its interactive audience. And man, that was one of the most, like, think what you want about Scream 3, but I tell you what, I've never had more fun watching Scream 3 than yeah. I did in that movie theater. Yeah.
1: So as they say, all good things must come to an end. And <laughs> pretty much like the tail end of the 80s, slashers were starting to get kind of stale. I mean, uh, there's only so much you can do and even the uh, even the mainstream movies like the Friday the 13th, Halloween's, Texas Chainsaw Massacres, Nightmare on Elm Street's, mm-hmm. They were really sort of leveling off. They weren't making as much money. And they, you know, because I think audiences were just kind of getting bored. Um, And, you know, they tried different things. You know, Friday 13th tried to do Jason Takes Manhattan. They were like, we're going to put him on a boat. Halloween, you know, tried to do more with like, Another sub story With like the family And Nightmare on Elm yeah. Street You know Tried to g- develop more Into like The origins of Freddy Sure You know And a lot of these other Slight sub genre slashers Like Child's Play And all the stuff They were getting into like You know
0: they were recycling three some of the parts. Three four and five yeah. and six, you yeah. know,
1: and like every horror movie, even like the low, low, low budget sort of D slasher horror movies were getting sequels. It's like, and it just sort of like kind of imploded on itself. And I, I think like by 1989 and what w- really like, and with Hollywood, it's like once the money dries up, they're just like, we're over it. Like you don't have to have too many failures uh, True. when, when, when they're not when they're not having returns or big enough returns
0: there was also the advent yeah. of having video video rentals this and is true. and that sort of thing so even if they weren't doing well at the theater these movies even though the the slasher genre was fading out and the plots were either being recycled yeah. or not original or whatever it may be People were still willing to rent that because of the case or because of the title. Yeah, and
1: and you did have some of these sort of like you know like slashers that were were big on video, like the Silent Night Deadly Nights. Yeah, weren't really big hits in the theaters, but and, you know in the video yeah. video market they were they they were successes. Yeah. And so you did have some slashers that like were almost like direct to video. You know that became a market. I won't say a lot of those were like no. ones you'd really want to sit through. And you know you, and you certainly had a couple of. Like movies like Motel Hell, where it's like they were mixing humor with a slasher element, and even even that started getting stale. Like I think, like by the end of the eighties, I think like audiences were just really wanting something more and really going in at at the end of the eighties. Like the horror genre of itself by eighty nine, you know, wasn't as big as it was. There wasn't as Mm -hmm. much demand for it but also too you know there was a change in times like going into the 90s late 80s 90s like special effects were changing people were getting more excited about like these sort of like action movie special effects where um that was like the new hip thing and you know seeing somebody like realistically get their throat slashed it's like okay I've seen that a million times (laughs) I've I've seen blood on a screen you know yeah how how many more ways can you do it so I I can understand why that happened but but that's not but that's not to say that some of these movies weren't were bad or anything but it just it it really did I think it just kind of dried up right around the end of the 80s
0: and when we reached the end of the 80s you know a lot of these movies had a new life or rebirth or they continued to live on in video rental and cable tv so these movies that were big deals in the 80s and the 70s like continued to live on but for the most part when we move into the early 90s, they kind of fizzle out.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that, yeah, a lot of the 80s movies got a new generation, started to see them on cable and on... That's where you know, I from, saw a lot From of renting them. them. But as far as, like, theatrical presentations, um, there, there, you know, was, like, a, a lag in slasher movies, though... Um, a lot of the big franchises that had been built up in the eighties, uh, did try their hand at, at squeezing out one more movie, but not just <laughs> s- but not to a great success.
0: So with that said, let's go ahead and turn the conversation to the nineties.
1: So the early 90s with slasher films, you can kind of say that they were dead, but there were movies coming out, but most of them were the they were like the 3rd to 5th sequel of a movie that you liked in the 80s, but they had kind of run out of steam. And generally the ones that came out in the early 90s were the ones that are generally regarded as like not the best ones, you know, like Child's Play 3 or like Even the mainstays like Nightmare on Elm Street with Freddy's Dead, they kind of went with this sort of like 3D gimmick. yeah. And it wasn't really so much about the kills anymore. And then Friday the 13th kind of went with this sort of Jason Goes to Hell, which was like this body swap thing. And it wasn't really like Jason himself. So they kind of, you know, I don't I don't blame any of these movies for trying different things. But in retrospect now, I mean, and that's the thing is like now you can look at and be like, oh, man, they should have stayed (laughs) <laughs> you know, back at the camp, that would have been the thing. But it's just like, well, they weren't making money then, so they were trying anything. But yeah, most of the ones that came out in the early '90s, I kind of I think mostly regard as like not the best of the series, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I feel the same way. Most of those are ones that I don't really revisit that often, especially um, around the month of October when that's the time that I would, if I'm going to watch anything, you know.
0: I do like know. Child's Play two a lot. Yeah, Child's Play 2 is all right. And, you know, it was and, like and, ninety. Yeah. It was like coming off of you the know, Child's 80s.
1: Play three was like pretty forgettable. But Yeah. Whatever. You know, you yeah. know.
0: There there are some that are worth it, but it's not necessarily because of the film's merit. But something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation and just calling something the next generation is I have a lot of feelings.
1: Yeah, and well and there was like other ones like like Doctor Giggles, of, yeah, you know, Doctor Giggles. The, there was yeah. like movies like that where it was kind of like this: <laughs> we're gonna try to, you know, I think that there was an attempt to create, like, try to create a new franchise of like some sort of killer, but most of these just didn't really, yeah, come off. And then also too, you know, you, in the '90s, like that was, it was sort of like m- we were moving more toward like the thriller that became like very mm-hmm. popular. So it was like. It was still movies where someone was going around killing people, like the Temp or like yeah. the Crush or all these,
0: but it was like
1: <laughs> less slasher and more about like this obsession, and then like they killed everyone around them.
0: You love bringing up the Temp or like I, the I, I crazy gardener or who something. Gonna, who else is going to bring it up? You know? <laughs> well, it is certainly saying something because we have these memorable, you know, Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, these people or these monsters, killers, whatever. But it's, it is really hard to cre- recreate them. And Leatherface, even though, you know, there's some crappy sequels, except for two, you know who Leatherface is. These are, these are things that, until we get to basically the mid-90s, we don't have another, we don't have another, you know, killer like this, or, or, or a memorable person. Sure, like, Slumber Party Massacre 2, sure tried, and... Until we get to the mid-90s, to about 95, 96, and it becomes a little bit more intellectual. And Wes Craven's new nightmare comes out in 94, and it's kind of rethinking the whole Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Freddy comes out of the nightmare, out of the movie world, and into the, you know, quote, real world, and he's an actual person. He's in our reality. So reality and fiction have crossed over. And then comes the bright idea from writer Kevin Williamson who a lot of people know from Dawson's Creek fame. He brings this idea to West Craven and together 9596 they come out with Scream.
1: Miramax had been huge in the indie film world. They have like, you know, became this sort of powerhouse studio and they decided to branch off and create Dimension Films which was its specialty was going to be pumping money into horror films. And they made a movie called Scream, which kind of really redefined the slasher genre, sort of launching like a, a whole new era of slasher films for, the, for like the mid to late 90s. So Scream was pretty much like really kicked off the slasher craze again, but not only that in like a different sort of way, because mm-hmm. Scream was such a success uh, granted, you know, I mean, Scream is a great film made by a solid director, Wes Craven, who was a huge horde, you know, as we've said, you know, a part of the slasher, yeah. you know, reinvention in the '80s when Nightmare on Elm Street took a, a great script by Kevin Williamson and like created this sort of like new era of slasher like this like self-awareness where the characters it's like they're living in the world where they've seen horror movies and they know the tropes and so they know to be careful and they know not to be idiotic as like characters in movies and what happened was is that scream was such a success I mean huge like 170 million dollars at the box office Um, you know some of these other movies in the 80s made a ton of money but gradual nothing like to the extent of scream and when that happened, all the other studios took notice and they're like, "You know what? We need to start cranking out our own slasher horror movies that are high-end and and more intelligent and like self-aware." And it really sort of like catapulted this sort of like huge wave of late 90s slasher films.
0: The thing that made um these movies even bigger and that made studios want to throw more money at them is that we also had the birth of a new teen generation and TV shows and celebrities. And the biggest thing that stands out for me with 90s, late 90s slashers is the stark difference not only in the age of the actors compared to 80s and that they actually look the ages that they're playing, but also, I'm probably not alone in this, but it seems like everyone in the late 90s was super attractive, Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And that really absolutely. wasn't, absolutely. it really wasn't like a thing that we were, yeah, there was totally, you know, the, the girls were all hot like we, in we the we 80s. Were, but this like, was
1: no longer, I, I think basically the <laughs> 90s, late 90s slasher. Yeah. We're no longer dealing with like the low budget world of filmmaking. This was like, these are
0: like paid actors. Yeah. These,
1: these are like people that are all around TV shows. They're already yeah. established. The and,
0: acting is considerably yeah. like more on point than it was in the 80s, but also the budgets on 90s films compared to the 80s were much higher for for actors and for the production as a whole
1: yeah i think just the the budgets alone is where you see the huge difference in the way a lot of the slashers films of the 80s looked uh, versus the 90s uh specifically if you just take the film i know what you did last summer which came out in 1997 there's this like massive sweeping shot that you would see in like yeah. that's sweeping over the the, <laughs> yeah. the ocean and like up onto this ridge and a car driving over and it's like something that you would see in like you know the music uh, is just like huge. It's something that you would see yeah. in like a big hollywood like adrian lynn film but instead it's like the beginning of a horror film that opening shot probably costs more than you know the first friday 13th movie and it's like yeah there yeah there there was just like a different uh, precedent and also like most of these movies the characters were like affluent they you know dressed better they were stylish there was hip there was like pop culture mixed in it, they did not look low budget and they seemed very stylized and very high end and to maybe a fault in some ways you know there was no gritty there was no grittiness about them there was like not a lot of mystery about them and sometimes the characters were like too smart for their own good. Like, you know, and that, and I think that happens yeah. like, like uh, I think like 98, we had urban legends and uh, within like the first like 10 minutes, like the group they're they group up and they start talking <laughs> about these killings and like, Hey, you know what I think someone's doing, you know, they figured the whole thing out. Yeah. And I, I like a lot of these, like late 90s slashers but I sort of missed this sort of idiocy going on with the characters of you know in, the, in this the simplicity of of people just like what's going on and they're just like running for their lives
0: with 90s compared to 80s 90s slashers they make me jump they don't really scare me how I mean save for scream scream scared the pants off of me and it makes me a little on edge Um, even still. I think that's kind of due to the music a lot in that because it's super dramatic. But 90s slashers did not scare me in the same way that 80s did. And I don't know if that has to do with that the production quality is better and it looks much slicker than it did in the 80s, where the 80s feels so gritty and kind of like, that's really, like, somebody just filmed that in my backyard type yeah, of thing. Yeah,
1: well, and they kind of did away with, like, I mean, there there were scores, but they sort of, like, sort of incorporated more uh, music, you know, like, whatever was the, hip at the time. Like Totally, it was it was sla- about what was I hot. I mean, a lot of yeah. times, like, with 80s slashers, it's like, yeah, maybe you get a song, like, playing on the radio in the background quiet, but usually they had, like, scores that were kind of creepy and... And this, even if they had the low budget, they do like a synthesized score or something. Yeah. But 90s slashers, you know, it's like there was a lot of like when you when you watch it now, it feels real dated because it's like, oh, this was like that song that was like on the exactly. radio in like 98. You know,
0: Exactly. One of the biggest differences that I've noticed as far as music goes, since you bring it up. Um, yeah. 90s, super hot hits, whatever the hot band is at the time. The 80s, though, um, yeah, not only like the random song on the radio, but man, how many punk rock bands there were! Just like how much they were trying to capitalize on that. Just it happened numerous times. Yeah, and it wasn't like a song you'd ever remember, or ever hear again, but just in the background. Yeah,
1: and I know it sounds like we're bashing on '90s slasher right now, but
0: I like I like them. I, 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 I like a lot of them like too. But
1: I but I will say this: there here here's the. Here, here's a lot of the positive sides of 90s slashers. Yeah. One, like we said, the acting was much better, like they were getting seasoned actors to take on these roles. I think Scream aside, I think Scream is like a standout movie in general, like outside of the horror genre, outside of the slasher genre. I just think it's a fantastic movie. Agreed. Some of these later films and the Scream sequels I I thought were just kind of retreads and didn't have the same chemistry. And I I don't know that you could recreate that. You know, just that moment in time of something coming out that was like real heavy and kind of sadistic, but at the same time like had like good acting and energy and like yeah. a really well crafted movie by a director who had made like twenty five movies. He was at the top of his game, you know, he knew what he was doing. But with nineties slashers, the big change for me, and I think is like very self you know evident when you're watching them now as opposed to eighties, is that they were kind of less sleazy a lot of the eighties slash slashers.
0: Yeah, they were yeah. a lot less sleazy. <laughs> you know, a lot
1: of the 80s movies, you know, a lot of 80s, you know, it's like, oh, it's about boobs and blood. But you did have some pretty sleazy 80s slashers where it's almost like uh, torturing women, you know, and it's like where we, you know, and there was a lot of that in the 70s. And I think it carried over in the 80s, you know, in um, the 90s, it was kind of like that was it seemed like they were like, we're not doing this and, Put that and, belt even, back and on. even if you had, and and they they still were kind of using the final girl, but like they were strong in the beginning of the movie. It wasn't like you know damsel in distress the first like forty minutes, and all of a sudden they had to like yeah. do, do something in the last twenty minutes. It's like they started out as these strong characters. What happened in the nineties, late nineties, you know, a couple of these movies didn't do that well. And when you're dealing with studios, it's like with a low budget world, you know, you can have hits and misses, and you know. People are going to try and try, but when it's strictly studio, something fails once or twice. It's like they, they don't really want to put a bunch of money and in, in promotion into it. Sure. And it was a very short-lived pop for slasher films of the 90s. I mean, by 2000, there was a couple of, you know, Valentine and I think another movie that really, you know, they they did like a sequel to Urban Legends and they didn't really do too well. And
0: Shout out to Anna Faris and Lovers Lane. That's yeah, just not the greatest movie but, but the, you know
1: there there they, it was very <laughs> short it was like a 4 year period and the end of slashers being made in the mainstream to me pretty much ended when studios got the bright idea of like let's take every movie that was popular from the 70s or 80s and we're going to do a reboot or an updated version of them thus began like about 15 years Of remaking horror films from the 70s and 80s.
0: Even at the same time as those remakes and reboots were happening, there were also the ideas of a slasher combined with science fiction, like The Faculty, or something, which was another Kevin Williamson one, too. But something else that combined slasher and, you know, that final twist, which is inventive, too, but yet yet we're going into this territory right hand in hand with remakes and reboots of this idea yeah, and that I, we don't have a completely original idea.
1: Yeah and I, and I think you know I think subgenres were a, a subset of that of like trying to sure. create something different. And you know and that happened in the 80s too. You know they there was like a blossoming yeah. of like a, you know subgenres that happened. But yeah, absolutely in the 90s there was a big call for like studios to say This doesn't work Let's do Let's do like An Invasion of the Body Snatchers Type story Thank you for saying that You know like There was a There was a couple (laughs) of those But But I definitely think In Hollywood Like they'll Something will hit They'll make three of them And if that doesn't work Then You won't see them For like five years I always use uh, Unforgiven As a good example Of like How like Hollywood (laughs) works They weren't making any Like sort of like Big Mainstream Hollywood westerns anymore Clint Eastwood can get any movie made he wants. He's like just one of those people in Hollywood. Yeah. He makes Unforgiven. People loved Unforgiven, not because it was a Western, but because it was a really well-acted, well-made movie with a good script and good yeah. actors and good story. And it was huge, won Oscars, and Hollywood interpreted it as, oh, people want to see Westerns right now. So they made about three or four big budget Westerns and they all bombed. And they're like, wait a minute, what's happening like... It, yeah, you know, they, it was like sometimes there's a trend and sometimes they catch a trend. And I think a little bit of that to me is like what we see with slashers in the late 90s. It was uh, Hollywood just wanting to put a toe into a trend. Again, the returns weren't coming in and they got out quickly. Sure. And they found a new thing. And that new thing was we're going to start remaking movies and rebooting <laughs> things.
0: Yeah, makes sense. But you know what? Those The 90s ones that I've been revisiting, I for not scaring me, I still enjoy them and I think that even though they're the ones that I can predict what's going to happen at the end, I'm still entertained by them and watching pretty teenagers like solve a Scooby-Doo mystery, sure, whatever, it's fine. I'm into it. I'll always go to bat too for urban legend, even though I think it's like kind of a cop out using, you know, stories that already existed and like whatever, still entertaining movie. I know what you did last summer. You know what? It worked. It worked. It's the old hook thing. It works. These movies were more formulaic and they followed the same tropes from the 80s, but it just it was a, a the next step a, um, in, in the slasher genre. And you know what? If anything, it got more money fun, funneled into the genre and let it go to where it's gone to today.
1: And uh, if I could say one final thing on slashers, uh, movies of the 90s, and uh, this was a movie that I wanted to do for my pick of the week, but I didn't because I, I kind of want to close things out on this before we get into our picks of the week, and that's uh, Halloween H2O.
0: Oh, we didn't. Because, oh, because yeah.
1: I want to save it. I wanted to save it <laughs> yeah. because this is a movie that I think uh, a lot of fans hate, you know, but I really love Halloween H2O, and I think that it does have a very 90s feel. It was one of the few, to me personally, I think one of the only... Mainstream slasher movies from the 80s that produced a sequel in the 90s that I thought was like pretty decent and it kind of goes back to its roots of, mm-hmm. of you know what was scary and what was kind of riveting about the first film and kind of skips over it. You know, it was the first movie. I mean, now this is there's reboots and reboots and they skip things and they do prequels and all this stuff. But it was one of the first movies I thought that had the idea of like, we're just going to skip over all these different incarnations and movies that you've seen before. And we're just going to go for this direct sequel. And, uh, I I don't know, man, I I really, it's one of those few, uh, slasher kind of sequels that I like go back to. And I think it's pretty solid, you know I mean? It's, it's definitely not without its faults, but I, I, you know, and I love the, the bringing an old character back with Jamie Lee Curtis and, mm-hmm. and using her mom, and I love Michelle Williams, and uh, I don't know. I, I think it it has a, a nice feel to it, and I don't know. For me, that was uh, outside of Scream. That's probably like my second favorite, second favorite slasher movie out of the 90s.
0: Man, I totally agree with that. And another thing with Halloween H2O is that I noticed... In a lot of, like, 80s slasher movies, parents were, like, kind of absent in a lot of ways. And then in the 90s, like, parents were kind of way more present or even part of the story. And with H2O, it was this cool combination of, like, kids and parents and the parent being directly involved in what happened prior, like, in, in the backstory. And I loved that combination of it. Um and to boot, you know, we have the original, original Scream Queen, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's mom from Psycho, Janet Lee, uh, coming back for this movie. So Halloween H2O, totally awesome.
1: So we'll close out the 90s on that. Uh, we're going to continue on our slasher talk, though, with our picks of the week. What we'll do is we'll first start with our 80s slasher picks of the week. Then we'll go back to the 90s. So your 80s slasher picks pick of the week
0: was, was sleepaway camp from 1983
1: what can you tell us about sleepaway camp Lindsay?
0: oh man how many times have i seen this one so i didn't actually discover this movie until much later in life and it's that old slasher trope that we've talked about the teen summer camp plagued by an unrelenting and creative killer but this one goes further um than a lot of slashers from the 80s it also has one of the most surprising endings i think in all of horror cinema Unlike the biggest camp slasher before it, Friday the 13th, Sleepaway Camp was hinting at the killer being among us the entire movie, but also offering a deeper psychology and twisted, unrealized childhood victimization, which ends up being the root behind the film's big reveal in the final frame. There's not a boring moment, I feel like, in this movie. You've got incredibly foul-mouthed, vulgar preteens and teens talking mad smack the entire movie. We open on Angela, and innocently sweet girl who's painfully shy almost completely mute for the better half of the beginning of the movie due to the film's emotionally and physically traumatic opening so in a freak accident eight years earlier Angela's father and only sibling die right in front of her because of her silent oddness perceived by other campers Angela is bullied teased tormented everything along with her cousin Ricky, whom she now lives with after her father and sibling were mowed down by that speedboat I told you about, were set up to dislike most campers, counselors, and even kitchen cooks at this camp, Camp Arawak, almost immediately. The bullies in in sleepaway camp are basically lining up to be the first killed. And yikes, that, uh, Justin, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember this movie well, but man, that Curling iron scene where your imagination creates the horror, one of the worst suggested deaths I've ever seen in a movie. So we're pretty certain that the killer is either Ricky, cousin Ricky, or Angela. But when Ricky's knocked out and Angela's left cradling her boy crush's decapitated head, well, it kind of becomes clear. But that's not the final, final twist, the reason that everyone remembers this movie. Angela is revealed to be Peter. The child who didn't die in the movie's opening boating accident scene. So Angela, or Peter, Peter's extremely odd, maybe psychotic, definitely, eccentrically disturbed, crazy Dr. Aunt Martha, who we see in the beginning and you're like, something's off with that lady and her acting is starkly different from everyone else in the movie. Uh, she's decided to take in Peter um, and also decided that she's always wanted a girl, so why not take in this poor, orphaned, traumatized head injury-having nephew and decide to raise him as his recently deceased sister, Angela? Perfect. Yeah, that's logical, especially for a doctor to do. What's horrific is kind of not the murders that have been happening this whole movie because kind of these people have deserved it, but it's that Peter's been misgendered and raised as a girl their entire life on top of the severe physical and emotional trauma which is I guess I don't know caused them to become the psychotic killer kind of makes sense and is really oddly I don't know makes you identify with the killer all in that one final moment at the end of the movie you're like oh my god what I get it I don't feel like there's anything inherently aggressive towards trans people or queer people, although you can throw this into the bin of negative representations of LGBT folks in cinema. However, I do feel like Sleepaway Camp is more about bullying and abuse versus any type of sexuality or sexual confusion, though there are some other scenes in there that might lend itself to some sexual confusion talk, but... Um, But I feel like it's more focused on the dangers of hiding who you are and that's something that starts in adolescence. So this movie did spark three sequels and while I enjoy them there's nothing really that compares to this first one. Two and three are entertaining but it really plays on that campiness and humor that really wasn't too much in the first one. So by blending humor, conventional tropes of the slasher genre and campiness, Sleepaway Camp really leaves you feeling unnerved and questioning everything you held true in the last 90 minutes of your life. Suddenly you find yourself wanting to rewatch the movie again and that's pretty cool for any movie, let alone a slasher movie from the early 80s. And I don't know how many times I've uh, watched this, but it still remains one of my favorite. And uh, Felissa Rose, who plays Angela, man, she still shows up to horror conventions and one of these days I'm going to make it make it to one and pay top dollar to meet that woman.
1: I know you've always thrown out um, Sleepaway Camp as one of your favorites. <laughs> yeah. I have a feeling that was coming up here. Yeah. I always, uh, Sleepaway Camp to me is like one of those movies like I didn't see until later in life, but yeah. it was always one Same. that the uh, video box always scared me because it was like the writing a letter to the parents and then it's like, wait, I think I hear something coming and then it's like dot, dot, dot of blood.
0: It's one of those that's it's not necessarily like I'm freaked out to go outside after it's over. It's just like I legitimately I want to know I want to know who the killer is cuz I'm not sad that these people are yeah. dying in the movie at all. One
1: heck of a final final
0: scene. Whew, so much. There's so I could go on and on. There's there's yeah. a lot to talk about with Sleepaway Camp, but we got to move on. Let's move on to your pick of the week, sir. Well,
1: uh my uh movie that I picked has one heck of a final ending as well those 80s movies (laughs) I know you had to to have something yep well my pick was uh, just before dawn it was one that I kind of learned about maybe only like 10 years ago Um, and I can kind of see why it was at the time uh, overlooked it sort of meticulously pulled from every slasher movie in really just kind of incorporate into its own movie without doing anything remotely original with it to an extent. um, You know, it borrowed from Texas Chainsaw Massacre with, you know, the youth going off to find the property that they supposedly like own uh, in an area that's like kind of like in a redneck type, you know, area like something that they're not used to. Uh, we have the the sort of like stock character who was like a famous actor in the seventies with George Kennedy, like Friday Thirteenth did with uh, Betsy Palmer. We also have like this sort of the, this killer that's that's roaming around. They're, they're teenagers. They they have their own little like camper van and they're driving around the woods like sort of aimlessly, you know, making out from time to time and then and then slowly getting killed. And then it has like this sort of like twist ending to kind of explain why these killings were taking place. So there wasn't a whole lot of originality happening. But when you watch it now, it plays pretty pleasant, you know, as far as like a slasher film from the 80s. About 40 minutes, 50 minutes into the movie, it does have this sort of twist ending where you're like, how did the killer get from here to there? And it turns out they're twin killers and they're inbred twin killers. It's not the most, uh, Socially conscious film, but uh, the ending, uh, one of the twins is is killed, you know, in a sort of normal fashion and basically uh, ends with the final girl choking the character, choking the, the other killer to death by ramming her fist down the killer's throat pretty much all the way to her elbow until the killer suffocates to death. When you watch it, it's kind of a sight to see. It's, it's, it's pretty messed up. Uh, it's pretty graphic and uh pretty effective really and uh there's also some other kind of like mumbo jumbo thrown in with like possession of you know the women of these sort of hillbillies and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me maybe that was like their own original angle that they had for the movie that was supposed to set it apart um but again i can see why this movie at the time didn't uh really take off but um it's definitely something to seek out now uh, just before dawn if you haven't seen it, it came out in 1981 uh has you know some, i think some like pretty decent acting from some no name actors and and if you're a fan of george kennedy it's worth a look and it definitely uh i think really takes all the best parts of like early 80s uh late 70s early 80s slashers and and rolls it all into like sort of like one pretty decent 90 minute flick
0: thank you so much for showing me this one cuz i i had not seen it before the other day and i really <laughs> really did enjoy it and i have to say the the fisting the mouth scene, you know, it's just one of those things you ha- you see in a horror movie and you're like, damn, I was not expecting that. That was good. Anyway, I, r- I really like I Just I think Before you said Dawn. it best.
1: You said it kind of made up for any, any anything that was lacking in <laughs> the first like 90 minutes of the yeah. movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, Just Before Dawn. Awesome one.
1: Well, let's keep on rolling. We're going to get into our 90s slasher picks of the week. And yours was Office Killer, which is a movie that I have not seen since the 90s.
0: Office Killer. Ugh. So when I was choosing picks, you know, for the for this episode, I realized I started kind of gravitating towards stories about people who were bullied or sought revenge. Sleepaway Camp's Angela had her reasons, as does Doreen Douglas in 1997's Office Killer. Directed by a renowned photographer, certified weirdo, and totally a college inspiration of mine, the one and only Cindy Sherman. I don't remember which liberal arts photography friend it was of mine that that brought Office Killer to my attention, but I'm forever thankful. This slasher is deeply disturbed, yet beautifully crafted. I, I love it so much, and I really don't understand why it's still not more recognized. So Doreen is the office wallflower the quiet one she's worked there longer than most the problem solver but also very easy to take advantage of and after the office staff is downsized she's forced to spend more time at home with her housebound mother for whom she's the caregiver her mother's absent-mindedness conjures up painful memories from Doreen's childhood causing the silent rebellion wanting to break free Doreen's daunting and troubled life has caused her to become slightly stunted, and although highly intelligent, she suffers from some type of arrested development due to trauma. So the movie stars Carol Kane as Doreen, Jeannie Triplehorn, 80s queen Molly Ringwald, yes, that Molly Ringwald from all the John Hughes movies, and a handful of other familiar faces. But it's Carol Kane that keeps you glued to the screen. Her performance is wow how do I say this she might be possessed by the spirit of Doreen who is this complex psycho like sure she's a mousy wallflower at work but she's taking notes on every inefficient inappropriate or dishonest move that you're making but she becomes this childlike yet coy woman whenever she's around a man she's constantly disheveled but her eyebrows alone let you know that Doreen is a half a bubble off Plum, and although quick to come up with an excuse to cover her tracks, her constant nervousness is an obvious giveaway. Although Office Killer is indeed a slasher, some kind of consider this part comedy, which I feel is a bit off. But it's this, I guess, sick, twisted humor that's playful, but man, it's, it's sick. But uncomfortable scenes, like kind of how we talked about a little bit before, Uncomfortable scenes can make people laugh, because how else do you react sometimes? You see Doreen's truly deep, demented psychosis brewing under her disordered exterior, and you're left in disbelief. Pretty much every time I watch Office Killer, I'll do a screen capture or a video and send it to a friend because I'm wide-eyed watching Doreen play with dead bodies that she's keeping in her basement, not noticing that they're rotting or anything like that, or even when she's wildly wielding around a Michael Myers knife. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are plenty of moments in this movie that just make you go, okay. This was Cindy Sherman's only dive as of yet into directing, and she played a big part in the story's concept, vision, and pre-production, but yet she's only credited as the director. Sherman really doesn't care to work with other people, so it took a lot of convincing from a producer to, you know, get her on board with this and tell her that she's going to have the most creative control over the film before she signed on. And Cindy Sherman is no stranger to the grotesque. In fact, she thrives on it. She loves horror movies. Office Killer also has a very spirited film noir lighting scheme and feel, but Sherman, I think, utilizes a lot of the same makeup tricks as she did in her photography, as seen in the saturated, very cold lighting scenes in Doreen's basement playroom with all her dead friends. Good God. (laughs) <laughs> this movie. This film looks as if Sherman pulled it straight out of her color or black and white portraits from her untitled film still series. It's a f- fun movie for anyone that's a fan of her work. Um, if you can stomach the grossness that is which Sherman embraced and I think she even wanted it to be a little bit more gory uh, but was I, if I've if I read correctly Jeannie Triplehorn was a little uncomfortable with some things. What the character of Doreen does with the bodies makes more of an impact than the actual kills in the movie, like a traditional slasher. Like the windexing of packing tape to hold together a disemboweled stomach is forever burned into my brain. But man, yeah, yet again, uncomfortably laughing over something completely grotesque. Office Killer is aware of its craziness, which I think is where the absurd humor comes from. But at the same time, it's a dark and sad story of a muted shell of a woman hiding from herself, being pushed around, stuck in a dependent mother-daughter relationship, then combined with this interpersonal struggle between she and other women in yet again another controlled environment at work and wanting to break free from oppression from men and other dominating forces. It's a gross, twisted movie and forever one of my favorites. But maybe Doreen will be showing up at your office one day. You best behave yourself. You never know what that co-worker's truly like at home.
1: I need to revisit this. <laughs> There's a, that's a lot more going on than I remember. I'll, I'll bring it over when yeah, we do our next do.
0: movie.
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to keep us going, uh, round out this for...
0: I know picks four picks. So I can't. Lot. I I I love your '90s pick.
1: Yeah, my '90s pick yeah. is popcorn, which uh, I've got a lot of love for this movie. <laughs> you do, I, I love I, it. I have a lot of love for this movie. It's 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 not the greatest movie in the world, but I think that there's a lot to admire in this, and it's a lot of fun. So this movie definitely has, I think, all the the things that a good slasher movie has. Uh, you know, it has this killer. We find there's a reveal at the end of the movie um, over. Uh, some wrongdoing, you know, and this person's lashing out on, you know, the people that they feel like wronged, wrong them. But there's a lot of other stuff in this movie that I think makes it a lot of fun. This movie really feels like a Joe Dante movie to me, really, which I think is another thing. It has that sensibility that I like about it. Uh, Just the setup alone, um, you have these film students and they're trying to raise money for the film department. So One of the guys, Toby, played by Tom Villard, who's fantastic in this movie, says, oh, there's this abandoned theater. They should do this like all night horror movie thon, you know, where they show old horror movies and and they're going to rig and they and he has a friend who has this memorabilia store. And so, of course, they're going to do these things where they have like odorama and they're going to blow stinky stuff into the movie and kind of like how. Uh, joe Dante did with matinee and paying homage to like the william castle films this movie is a 90s film but it has a very 80s montage where they somehow are able to in just what seems like maybe like two or three hours convert this like abandoned gross movie theater into a like really hip looking like awesome horror movie marathon night and um while this storyline's going on the main actress from the movie played by jill sholin uh she did some horror films before doing Popcorn. She was in The Stepfather, Cutting Class, and Phantom of the Opera with Robert England. She's sort of having these weird nightmares, these visions of this man uh, named Lanyard Gates who looks like he's starting to do some sort of like self-sacrifice. Well, anyway, when they're digging around in these boxes of this movie memorabilia that set up a theater, they find this short film called Possessor. And when they play it, the guy from the film is the guy from her dreams. Well, she asked her mom about it. The mom played by D Wallace stone, who was in Joe Dante's howling and other great eighties movies has a very nightmare on Elm street vibe where she's like, Oh, she gets kind of freaked out by it. Well, the story is turns out her mom knew Lanyard Gates. She, um, was, uh, knew some of the actors, this guy, there's a legend behind the guy, Lanyard Gates. Like he was, he made this film called Possessor, and he killed all the people. He killed his family and during the film and, and lit this theater on fire and burned everybody up. So we have two stories going on. She's getting kind of creeped out. Uh, meanwhile, someone's slowly killing all the main characters in this theater during this all-night horror movie marathon. It turns out the killer, uh, who's the guy we've come to love, Toby, played by Tom Villard, he was uh, the 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 reveal the ending is is that the main character she's actually Lanyard Gates' daughter. Her mom is actually her aunt who took her away, you know, rescued her from getting killed by this guy when he burned down the theater. And Toby, the character we've all grown to love, like I said, he was burned in that fire, and uh, he's out for revenge. So he decided the best thing to do would be to torment her mom and her, you know, as payback. And we reveal that his face is, is burned, and he does these different makeup and effects to to create the the look of of Toby, the film student that who's super friendly. So it has all these key elements of a good slasher movie. But um, this is one I think uh, it's not super gory. If you're a movie fan and you're like into like behind the scenes movies and movies about movies, I think that you're you're gonna have a lot of fun with this. Um, this is another one too that I absolutely like love the cover. I love the title. I think it's one of the better offerings of horror films of the early nineties and definitely of the slasher genre of the early nineties.
0: One of the most creative. Like it's it's um it's really fun. Yeah. If you like horror movies, if you like movies in general, it's a it's a really fun one to watch. And I I always really liked Tom Villard and Man, he's a uh, super creepy in this, and all the makeup and prosthetics and stuff on yeah. him—it's—it's it's really fun to watch.
1: It's a cool, it's the and it, like again, it's uneven the way they the, the the story kind of unfolds, but sure, um, the, it's it's a it's a good effort, and I I think it it pays off.
0: It's a really fun movie.
1: Yeah, highly recommend it. Well, those are our picks of the week. Our '80s picks: uh, Just Before Dawn and Sleepaway Camp. Our '90s slasher picks: Office Killer and popcorn Um, so we're going to get out of the slasher talk and uh, move on a little bit here's your Murray moment Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear and when I do it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal I'm sure I need a long slow root canal
0: You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again?
1: Oh, what does that old queen know?
0: She didn't even show. crazy, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. hey, this is so assumption. Mm-hmm. Is this hand shocked?
1: The flowing robes grace, all oh. striking. That was fun.
0: So slashers are certainly known for their attractive ladies. And one actress who continues to get a shout-out in films appears at, at horror conventions. She's the babe who bullied Carrie in the De Palma classic. The girl even rocked with the Ramones in Rock and Roll High School. But we all know her best as Jamie Lee Curtis's BFF in Halloween. And that actress is P.J. Souls. And wouldn't you know it, even Billy Murray had a crush on P.J. Souls. He'd call me at 3 a.m. and ask me to come over, said PJ in a recent interview. And had she not been married to Dennis Quaid at the time, that might have come to fruition. But one of the cutest on-screen romantic pairings Billy's ever had was with PJ in 1981's Stripes. You ever heard of something called the Aunt Jemima Treatment? Don't worry, it's not racist. So just to set it up a little bit, Stripes, um, Billy's character is an army soldier in training and PJ's military police. Billy uses his pushy flirting techniques, direct eye contact, aggressive yet goofy charm, and quick humor to feel out PJ's reluctant flirtatiousness. During filming, Billy's ad-libbing skills were at 11 for this scene, and PJ wasn't prepared. It wasn't in the script. And when you rewatch this scene, understand that the realness of the scene was completely authentic. I swear, it kind of looks like they're falling in love, or at least falling for each other right before you. Originally scripted as PJ and her MP counterpart, played by Sean Young, Um, they're outside watching fireworks with Billy and Harold Ramis, and each couple, you know, is supposed to share their first kiss, like, you know, the ladies letting down their guards and getting closer to their crushes. Well, the night of filming, it was raining, so no fireworks, nothing could be shot outside, It's 3 a.m., everyone is bushed, crew and cast, they're just waiting out this rain. Billy is just hanging out. He goes to the fridge and pulls out a carrot and walks over to PJ. What are you going to do with that thing, PJ says to Billy. And thinking on his feet, Ivan Reitman sees this, grabs his camera, because he knows Billy's got an idea that no one else is hip to just yet. You know what your problem is, baby? You're armed. You're heavily armed. Billy walks over and grabs a nearby spatula and says, you know what your other problem is? You've never been given the Aunt Jemima treatment, have you? And then quickly pops PJ's body up on the stove. Now remember, they haven't really rehearsed this. PJ's feeling it out and just going with it. She's squirmy sitting atop that stove, and then Billy starts rapidly and pretty annoyingly sticking that spatula under her butt and legs and crotch. She's half-heartedly trying to thwart his efforts, but obviously kind of into it, too. Then he brings out the rolling pin, as if he's rolling out dough, except he's doing it on her legs and her upper body. Then he breaks out the ice cream scooper, and only PJ knows what he did to make her wide-eyed and jump without one, because we don't see it on camera. He's doing this all while saying, come on, admit it, you're crazy about me, You're head over heels in love with me. It's true. PJ's character obviously does like him, but she's resisting because fraternizing with cadets is a no-go for an MP. But she's not really holding out that hard. Billy's unrelenting. You're helplessly, hopelessly, deeply in love with me, aren't you? And, wait for a beat, ever so sweetly, PJ replies, yes. And in that moment of adorableness from this little horror queen, PJ Souls, it's a showstopper for me. The way Billy looks at her when he says, I knew it. Feels so real. The eye contact that they make, phew, it's hotter than when Billy turns that stove burner on PJ's butt while she's still sitting on it. Yeah, sure, they had to go back and do some close-up shots, but this entire scene was off the cuff. Billy let it, and PJ played so perfectly along, which made for such a charming moment. PJ's commented that she felt like they had a great connection throughout the, this entire movie, but she also found herself being somewhat competitive with Billy, wanting to make sure she was on equal footing and that she didn't want to have any of her scenes stolen by him. He was a much bigger celebrity than her at the time, understandably, but she felt that they co-owned any confidence um, in any of their scenes together, and Billy never overtook any situation and obviously respected every contribution she had for their scenes. I don't think he visualizes what it looks like to be funny, PJ said before. That's just kind of the brilliance of Bill Murray. She's also said that he would turn it on with the camera around, but noted that he'd do a 180 sometimes when the cameras are off. Although most of the cast, including Billy, got into the army spirit, you know, like 5 a.m. jogging and whatnot, which was fun. PJ found it interesting that Billy was a totally different person off screen. Bill's kind of a depressed guy, PJ said in an interview. He puts it all out there when the cameras are rolling and tries to be funny and witty and a genius, but otherwise, he's not that funny. But those were different times, and not an off-the-mark observation. Even Joel Murray has said that his brother's current moodiness isn't anywhere near what it used to be around those times. But PJ gets why Billy's so adored. She'd known him since his days at Saturday Night Live, and knew he was special then. But with the advent of social media, she's said it's no wonder his popularity has soared like it has never before. And really, the same could be said for her, too. Stripes is still such a great movie to revisit. It's an adventure comedy about the army, and the only two female characters are ass-kicking ladies who fall for the two dorkiest army guys. And of course that sweet Aunt Jemima scene with Billy and PJ never gets old. And what a quotable movie too. But that's your Murray moment, an adorable, sweet scene that we don't really get to see that often with Billy. Um, and it also happens to be with a Halloween horror queen, PJ Souls.
1: I love the incorporating of the slasher films with PJ Souls. I love PJ Souls.
0: I was waiting for that one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I like I like hearing about stripes anytime, you know, you you brought it up before.
0: I love that movie. It's a good one. It is. It keeps it, you think that it's going to end and then it has another like yeah. 30 minutes left and you're like, oh, "It's still good. Yeah.
1: Well, thanks for that Murray moment. Of course. So before we totally wrap things up, is there any final thoughts you had on just a slasher genre in general, the eighties and nineties?
0: You know, there, I don't think a lot of people realize that a lot of slasher movies that are so beloved, um, you know, a fair amount of them are Canadian. Yeah. You know, we've mentioned Black Christmas, which was a h- huge one that that established, you know, this genre. But we also have what Prom Night, Prom Night Two, Hello, b- Hello, Mary Lou, Yeah, <laughs> um, Happy Birthday to Me, Happy Birthday to Me, April Fool's Day, My Bloody Valentine. Um, let's see, Terror Train, that was another oh, one. Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis. Um. Yeah. Just a a lot of uh Canadian ones, and and I know it kind of crosses into the werewolf genre, but Ginger Snaps, man, I gotta throw some props out to that one. That's yeah. a super bloody slasher, werewolf, crossover there. So thank you, Canada. <laughs> um, Justin, did you have a final thought?
1: I guess my only final thought would be, um, you know, I know this episode's been. Focused on 80s, 90s uh, slasher films, but there really weren't too many slasher films post 90s that come out um, theatrically anyway. But Mm -hmm. as recent as just last year, we had the new um, sort of like we had the new Halloween movie come out uh, that had Jamie Lee Curtis in it. Uh, That broke all the box office records for any Halloween movie that had come out, um, for any Halloween movie that's come out since the original. That's crazy. And, you know, that, that shows that people still want to see slashers. Yeah. Um, I, I, I see that they're making uh, two more of these with Jamie Lee Curtis. I can only guess that, uh, you know, if those are successful, there'll be more slasher movies we'll see in theaters. Um, maybe there'll be another, you know, resurgence in 2020.
0: I'm crossing my fingers for for that franchise because I I really really appreciated I'd, the 2018. One.
1: I did too. I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I thought there there are just so many aspects of that plot. I mean, that's a whole other discussion. But man, where they where they went with that story was yeah. awesome and very intelligent too.
1: Well, that closes us out for our uh, Halloween special. Happy Halloween, everybody. We hope you um, are safe and you have a good time and you're watching a lot of scary movies.
0: And remember, they're supposed to be fun. Scary movies, horror movies, they're supposed to be fun. And even slasher movies, they might be bloody and gory, but they're meant to be watched with your friends and meant to make you be able to express your fears in a safe space.
1: So for our next episode, we're gonna go light uh switching gears switching gears we're coming into november uh our next movie is one that's near and dear to both of our hearts and that's uh john hughes's john candy starring uncle buck yes oh man uncle buck that'll be a fun one and it's getting into that i always think of that as like a not not so much like a holiday movie but it's like a winter time movie like going into winter definitely more lighthearted
0: than slashers
1: yeah I think we need that. Yeah. I've watched a lot of slashers in the last month.
0: <laughs> it's It's been a big month for it. I mean, yeah. obviously, we have to. We've got to celebrate that uh, month of Halloween. But, yeah. you know, we need some lightheartedness, too. Yeah. And who better to serve that to us than John Candy?
1: Yeah. Well, if you want to follow us on social media, you can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you want to check out old episodes, uh, you can go to our website, don'tpushpausepodcast.com. Uh, we also have a store on our website now where you can purchase merchandise from the podcast and some other goodies that we have up there available. Um, also, any videos that we've made, anything, everything is archived on our website. Thanks to Lindsay here. And if you'd like to reach us directly, you can always contact us at pushpausepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson.
0: And I'm Lindsay Reber.
1: Thanks so much for listening.
0: Happy Halloween, guys.